clearest measure of the system's shortcomings is arguably its treatment of sovereign debt problems. Because it's so clumsy and inadequate in its coverage, countries are left hanging in a situation that has been described as incandescently painful. Hello, this is the Weekly Tradecast, a podcast brought to you by UNCTAD, the UN's trade and development body. I'm Sarah Thomas. We're exploring how major events are shaping trade and development and how that affects billions of people around the world. This week, we're looking at the global financial architecture and how those systems and rules need to evolve to help investment and trade flow smoothly and more sustainably. The war in Ukraine, a global cost of living crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic have disrupted economies and piled on debt pressure as interest rates rise. For many countries, the debt distress presents stark choices between repaying loans, investing in development and coping with climate change. So how can vulnerable countries manage their debt burdens and free up financing for a high value and low carbon future? And what changes need to happen in the global financial system to promote development and sustainability? Well, joining me now to find out is Penelope Hawkins, Senior Economist at UNCTAD's Debt and Development Finance Branch. She's worked in the public and private sectors and likes freshwater swimming, yoga and walking her dog. Well, hopefully, Penelope, you're not doing the freshwater swimming now. It's a bit (laughs) chilly. Yeah, it turns out I'm not uh, a purist in this. Back to financial architecture, and the international financial system is a complex machine and has many moving parts. So tell me in a bit more detail what it is and what it's actually supposed to do. So you're right, Sarah, it does have many moving parts. When we think of the international financial system, we have to imagine the countries with their own central banks. We have to think about markets regulators nationally, both internationally. We also think, of course, about very important institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. And in an ideal world, it would create a global economic system that would allow countries to grow while they are borrowing so that they can develop trade capacities, improve their terms of trade, uh, transform structurally. And then also, of course, there would be a fair system of international taxation. So in that sort of ideal world, we see a a situation where countries would have access to multi-layered and resilient structures of development finance, and there would be overlapping and complementary sources of financing that would be transparent. But that's not what we have. What we see is a deeply hierarchical and unequal system that has become increasingly disconnected from development priorities. And we can see this in different ways. We can see the volatility of external private financing to developing countries, those flows. We can see a very much higher cost of capital faced by developing countries. We see a net negative international financial position of developing countries, which means that more foreign exchange is flowing out than in. The costs and the risks of being unable to actually issue an international currency affect them. And then, of course, there is unequal access to the global financial safety net and an increasing growth of illicit financial flows. So all those things are working against developing countries. But arguably, 
the shortcomings of the system are most apparent, and many have argued this, in the treatment of sovereign debt problems. Mm. And the reason for that is that what is there is clumsy, inadequate, but the clearest measure of the system's shortcomings is arguably its treatment of sovereign debt problems. And more than one commentator has suggested that because it's so clumsy and inadequate in its coverage, countries are left hanging in a situation that has been described as incandescently painful. Right. With real effects, real negative effects on the population, especially, of course, vulnerable people. So I think that what we've seen since the pandemic, you set it out very nicely in the introduction, that there's been this series of global events that have shown that, in fact, the situation that countries are in now is much less to do with themselves than their inability to deal with these huge external shocks. They are not resilient, and that, of course, is undermining their ability to develop. And the UN has been talking about this narrative for some time, that although countries are actually servicing their debt, at what cost? If you think about the low-income countries, they are currently paying away almost 23% of their export earnings in order to service their sovereign debt. And so the UN has said this is clearly unsustainable and it's undermining the sustainable development goals. So resources that could be used for those goals are obviously being used elsewhere to service foreign debt. Well, Penelope, incandescent pain sounds like it's not a matter of just a few fixes. Does the system need a much bigger overhaul? Well, in my opinion, absolutely. We have seen some changes since 2020. We've also seen at least 13 countries default. And we've seen some moves. For example, there was the debt service suspension initiative for countries so that there was a standstill on their debt repayments for the period of May 2020 to December 2021. We also see that there have been some new instruments, for example, a space for um, special drawing rights to be rechanneled through the IMF. They've opened up a window called the Resilience and Sustainability Trust, and there have been some pledges for that. But unfortunately, the disbursement from that has only been less than about half percent of that which has been pledged. So there have been some things that have been going on, but we see that these initiatives are insufficient to redress the deep structural asymmetries intrinsic to this current financial architecture. And we see that they affect long-term sustainable development finance. They also, of course, compound the impact of exogenous shocks through exchange rate fluctuations. And for least developed countries, this has proven to be a very toxic mix. We think we need to focus much more directly on a system that supports development and resilience. And so we know that developed countries have far greater resilience, and it's no surprise they've recovered well after the COVID shock. But the same is not true for the developing countries. But this is not just a national problem. This is an international problem, and we all need to play our part. What combination of changes then would deliver the best results for financing development and the green transition and the resilience against future shocks? And it's difficult to balance all these different elements, isn't it? 
It sure is. And what is clearly obvious is that perhaps in the past, low-income countries would have a larger share of grants and of official development assistance. And so, of course, that would actually cover some of their needs. Now, of course, those sources have shrunk relatively. And so they are searching for an alternative source. And of course, that's where we end up with more and increasing debt. And so in the first instance, we're saying we really need mobilization of more concessional finance, either through greater capitalization of the multilateral and regional development banks, who are really often the best sources of finance for some of these developing countries, or a new issuance of special drawing rights, because these things would help immediately with the liquidity address issues related to foreign exchange reserves. And then we feel that we need greater accessing to finance that's guided by improved transparency in terms of conditions and how the financing is going to be used. One possibility that we explored is actually digitizing loan contracts so that the terms and conditions are much more readily interpreted and available. We also think that there should be some rules about collateralized sovereign bonds to protect developing countries. Within UNCTAD, we are in the process of reviving our principles for responsible sovereign borrowing and lending, simply because we think these guiding principles can really underpin some of what is happening in this life cycle. And then at the country level, we really believe there needs to be a technical assistance push to help in the debt sustainability analysis and management programs. Here, of course, we have our own debt management and financial system in UNCTAD, which helps over 60 countries as we speak. But we think that even beyond that, countries need more empowerment to be managing their own finances. And then, of course, we also see the need for a truly global financial safety net. I mean, it's somewhat ironic, but the most advanced countries have a very complex and overlapping access to a, a net that they really need. Mm-hmm. Whereas the developing countries, um, many of them, there's only one player who will help in the last resort, and that's the IMF. And of course, that is not without stigma. Mm-hmm. It implies a certain thing. But if that country could instead be dealing with another central bank and offer some kind of liquidity swap in a time of a crunch, then in fact, there would be less stigma. We also think that we need more work to address your issue about green transition. We need more work on sustainable development bonds and resilient bonds. And then in the times of a poly crisis, like we have have lived through, a country's ability to remain resilient while servicing its debt is obviously really, really tricky. And so we really believe that there needs to be a commitment to a standstill so that the indebted country can continue to work on climate and health and um, external crises and deal with those external crises and the impact on the local economy. And we think that there should be more coordination between borrowers, which will help um, improve this conversation around a robust debt workout mechanism and perhaps even ultimately a global debt authority. The discussions really need to take place around balancing creditor treatment and borrower rights and the ability of a country to be a functioning, flourishing member of the international community. 
Well, Penelope, there's a lot on the to-do list. That was Unctad's Penelope Hawkins, who was this week's guest. Tune into the weekly Tradecast next week and every week for more insights on the most pressing issues around the world of trade and development. And there's even more on our website, unctad.org. I'm Sarah Thomas in Geneva. Goodbye for now. Thank you.